I don't know, maybe there's too much weighted towards talent and gifting and head starts and everything else. I don't know. But the more, I guess, kind of life happens, the more I found out that time plus effort will take you a lot further than, I guess, talent and whatever else you may have or you may feel like is the big ticket you need to get to where you need to go. This is a Hillsong Creative Podcast, where we hear from creative experts and influencers, the dreamers and the doers, what they've learned and what we can learn from their journey as we explore, respond and create. I'm Rich Langton and today we have a very special episode. We call it The Practice Panel. Hey, well, welcome back to the podcast. It's so good to have you listening for another episode. Today, we have something different for you. It's a panel that we recorded at our Hills campus at one of our team nights. We get questions all the time about what we do at team night. And so this is a good example of what that might be. When we recorded this, we we realized that it was so applicable to anybody, not just our Hills team, but to any creative. The need for practice is so vital in order to get better, in order to be our best, in order to do all of what God might have us do. So on this panel, we have Gabe Kelly, who's our Hills creative pastor. He's interviewing Sebastian Strand, one of our incredible, I I might call him a creative visionary or creative genius, but he's a video editor. We have Tabitha, who's one of our incredible dancers. Chelsea, who's a vocalist. You're going to hear her story, which is unbelievable. And Mashiri, who oversees our creative technology and production team across Australia. You would have heard him on some of our previous episodes as well. This is a great panel. I think you're going to really love it. And there's a lot of one-liners that you can grab and really apply to your creativity. So let's jump straight into it. Tonight, I thought that we would talk about something very useful, uh, very underrated, very underspoken of, but something that is essential to our development creatively. And so if you're writing notes, this is the first word you need to write down of many before our panelists share their wisdom. Tonight is a night about practice. Who feels that little stab of conviction already? Who's going, oh, when was the last time I actually practiced what I tell people that, I'm, that I do and that I care about? But what I love about these guys is for each of their creative pursuits, whether it's um, vocally or in any of the other arts that we'll talk about here with this crew, these are guys who have dedicated themselves throughout the years to practice, see the importance of it, see it as part of not just their creative development but also their Christian development. Um, And I am grateful that you guys would spend some time with us. Um, And by virtue of just a little bit of background about yourselves, I would love to hear, starting with you, Strand, on the left, because your socks match the couch and your shirt. I'd love to hear a little bit about um, how you got started doing what you're doing, what the early years looked like for you as a a young gun. um, How did you kind of get a passion for what you do and what did practice look like early on? Okay, so I've always, like, been doing media and stuff in church. I'm a video editor, so... Um, all those awful videos that you sometimes go on YouTube and find really cheesy church stuff, that was me. And still am to a certain extent, I would say. Um, but I just kept doing that for the church, and then I came here and did college, which was awesome, um, TV and media stream, and then and I just kept doing it. When much. did you cut your first video? Oh, gosh. How old were you? Maybe 14? What were you but it, it wasn't good. I, no, it would I didn't, probably I didn't be say like, it was. I made a cut, yeah. Um, <laughs> What were you editing it on? Oh, some old 
PC probably before the Mac time. It was pretty bad. Do you remember what it was? No. Okay. Not at all. It's for the best. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I put that in the forget box. <laughs> um, Tabitha, you are a fantastic dancer and just an all-around legend. Um, I think you're going to get a lot of support from the dance community tonight, which is nice. They're, they're those kind of people. All right, it's about Tabitha, not you, so zip it. Um, how about you tell us about your own story when you first remember dancing, what it was like growing up, um, what practice looked like for you early on? Um, practice originally looked like dancing in between uh, the ads of TV shows <laughs> um, to my parents and my family, making up dances, putting concerts on. Um, when I got a little bit serious at 15, um, it looked like dancing from 8 till 10 or 8 a.m. till 10 p.m. at night, Monday to Friday, um, competing on the weekends. Um, look like being in classes. What you, wait, no. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? How do you do that? I can only breathe from 8 till 10. <laughs> Didn't you go to school? Didn't you have like anything? Yeah, so I left school. Um, I got a scholarship at a place and. <laughs> Um, but in saying that, I was in classes as a 15-year-old. I got put in some classes with a 7-year-old because my teacher believes um, more in my growth than my pride, you know, and I think Ooh. that's an important lesson. Like, I was put, yeah, in classes where those people are a lot like, younger than me because they wanted me to get their foundations right. And I think that's something that I've learned and as a teacher now I try and teach um, my students is that, you know, when you're growing and when you're trying to develop your talent, it's good to be in classes where you're the best. It builds your confidence. It builds um, who you are. You feel good about yourself. But actually, sometimes it's good to be in a class where you're the worst because then you can grow and you can see where you are now and where you want to be. Um, yeah. Well, I think we're good for tonight. Um, I love that time. Chelsea, how about you? Your early memories of singing and what practice looked like for you back in the day? Yeah. Um, grew up in a musical household, so both of my parents are musicians and singers. My dad went to Berkeley and um, studied composition, so I always kind of felt like I lived in his shadow just a touch. Hmm. Um, studied with some of the really great pianists, and he plays every instrument. So every instrument I would bring home to kind of be like, you can't play this one. He'd just pick it up and play it. And he's like, oh, I haven't done the violin in ages. <laughs> I'm like, well, forget that. And so I kept going through all the instruments until really it was, singing was the one that I loved the most. And as an only child for a really long time, there wasn't, and an introvert, highly introverted, um, there wasn't really much else to do other than put Whitney Houston on replay for 15 hours a day. We've and, all done it. We've all done it. Yes. And really, as a kid, I was probably a lot more disciplined in ways that I didn't understand than I really was as an adult and had to relearn discipline in sitting down and practicing. Really? Oh, yeah. You had to relearn as an adult? Yeah. What do you mean? Because as a kid, it was play and it was fun. And I didn't know it was practice. I just thought, I'm going to master that run. Like, when you're six, how, how well did you really master Whitney Houston's run? Like, you didn't. Um, <laughs> But I definitely thought I did with my hairbrush. Like, I was like, yes, got that. But I just would practice and, pra and didn't realize it was practice because it was play. 
And it wasn't until I actually went into uni and made a career of it when I realized that I was undisciplined and that if I was going to compete in opera against people who had been doing opera since they were six, I was going to have to get some discipline and actually do some time in a practice room. And, and that was a hard lesson to learn. Okay. We we're going to talk about this later, but let's talk about it now. You talk about practice as play. Yeah. And you talk about also having to discipline yourself to reach that level. Was that a difficult bridge for you to build to go, I need to be more disciplined, but I also need to see it as play like I did as a kid? Tell me about that. Yeah. I think it was miserable for my first year of uni because a lot of it had come very easily to me until then I was like, oh, I need a challenge. And now it wasn't easy anymore. And I think it can be very easy for us as creatives to lose our discipline because it's not easy anymore. And we think that if it's God or if it's what I'm supposed to do or a gift, it's easy, right? And actually discipline is hard. And I would say I got into my second year of uni and all of a sudden went, this is so much fun again. And it actually took a Cowboys cheerleader who was my accompanist Legit, she was the the Cowboys cheerleader, but was one of the most fantastic classical pianists ever to basically whoop my butt into shape and say that what I was giving out wasn't good enough and that I was better than that. And I was like, go team. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Mush, can you tell us just quickly about your journey, creatively, your background, how your earliest kind of leanings towards what you're doing? Um, Mine is one of time and wasn't talent, it wasn't gifting, it wasn't a leg up, it wasn't this, it was just time. And always has been for any endeavor I've ever put my hand to. And I think in all honesty, probably that will always will be because I think, I don't know, maybe there's too much weighted towards talent and gifting and head starts and everything else, I don't know. But the more, I guess, kind of life happens, the more I fi- I've found out that time plus effort will take you a lot further than, I guess, talent and whatever else you may have or you may feel like is the big ticket you need to get to where you need to go. I don't know. That. So that's been my thing. I don't necessarily have any outstanding talents of any kind, but I, I guess I have whatever it is I put my hand to. I put my hand to today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, and the next day. And I love that, I love that equation because it makes yeah. it so simple and it removes yeah. every excuse that you yeah. can put around it. Exactly. Um, so. Strain, coming back to you, you talk about your first video was probably cut on some old PC with whatever software you could download for free. Um, Like a lot of people, particularly in your profession, can look at the tools they have and and those tools can, they can let those tools limit them. They can say, ah, if I had faster computer, this, that, the other, like how much do you think that your own development as a film editor, as a visual creator is reliant on the stuff you're using and how much of it is just you and the discipline that Chelsea talks about, the time plus effort that Mush talks about and the dedication that we've already heard a little bit about? I think there are tools to help you go further, but you should always try and push further until they become a limitation. Like if, if they aren't a limitation, then you're not pushing hard enough, if that makes sense. So if you've got a certain piece of software that can do this and this, you can always push it further than what you think, if that makes sense. And if you're not, then you're probably not doing it. Sounds harsh. No, that's good. Tell me, tell me something that's, where that's been your experience. Um, for example, here at church, we've got these like iMag or whatever director desks to cut cameras and stuff. And most people would just sit down and you go, oh, you cut to camera one, cut to camera two. But then there are these little hidden 
fun things that you can only find out if you actually explore and try to push it. So if you just keep going, so like for example, I'd sit down and I'd be like, what if we had fade this and then we add a PowerPoint slide on top with a triangle or a whatever, not triangle. Not triangle. Like a, no, don't like a email circle. your mum and dad back home. We do not know. <laughs> so then you keep pushing it, and so the people who are responsible for the desk are like, oh, don't break it, you know, but you kind of have to not break it, but push it beyond the limits, beyond maybe what anyone else has seen for it to excel, if that makes sense, and create a need for maybe the next step. Because yep. you can't keep asking for new equipment to keep growing. You've got to outgrow the equipment that you're on, if that makes sense. Sheesh. Wow. Um, we just need like some plastic <laughs> microphones just to drop like all the time after all these, I feel like. Hey, we're going to get back into the panel in just one second, but I wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by our Hillsong Worship and Creative Conference. If you're loving this panel, this is the sort of thing that you'd hear and you'd be a part of at the Worship Conference. So I'd encourage you to check it out at hillsong.com forward slash WCC, and I look forward to seeing you there. Let's get back into it. Um, Tab, let's come back to you a little bit on this. Um, it's great that you were dancing from 8 a.m. till 10 p.m., but now you have a job, a life, a husband, like all these things. You don't get to do that anymore. You, don't, you aren't able to give it 14 hours a day to practice and improve. Um, so since that time to now, what has practice looked like for you? What does it look like now when your time is that much more measured? Yeah, really. You know, before I say what I'm going to say, I got a revelation um, a few years ago that in order to be prepared, um, preparation equals sacrifice. And so right now, if I was to look at my life and think, okay, I want to be better at dance, um, there's actually no time. Like there's all, all time is filled up um, either with hanging out with Sebastian or doing work or whatever, but it's That's actually... Not <laughs> I'm not Her husband, Sebastian, as well. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. Um, but now it actually means giving up certain things to upskill. And so for me, it's um, going on a Saturday to um, another place to dance or... Practical example, um, during Colour Conference, we had Luke um, from London come and help us clean our routines. And for me, that wasn't just a rehearsal. That was me learning. And I take every experience here at Hillsong, if it's um, a rehearsal or me teaching, that's a place where I can upskill. Because even as a teacher, I'm learning from my students. And I'm never, I'm never arrived. You know, excellence isn't a destination. Excellence is going from part A, realising where you are, um, to realising where you want to be, and it's the process in between. You never reach excellence. Yeah, never. You never reach it. And so um, it's a continue continue, um, process. I love that. You talked at the start there. I love what you said about how you have to to prioritise. You've got to give up other things to choose the thing you want to develop. Um, Chelsea, if you want to talk about this quickly, from that point where you were studying, you sang a lot in a lot of places um, and like was your life and I'm sure you also found yourself in a position where you had to give up other things you would like to do in order to get good at what you feel like you were created to do. So tell us a little bit about that process for you of going, cool, if this is going to be what I'm put on the earth to do, what was that level of dedication like for you to get there? Yeah, it was very similar. It was 
being in a practice room for six hours a day. And when you're in uni, you have to also do other instruments. So it wasn't just practicing arias. It was, I took a classical piano lesson a week and I also took a jazz piano lesson a week. And so I was in two hours with vocals, two hours with piano, then you have to practice. And it means that a lot of times when other people were going to parties and they were out late or when people were partying in my house until all hours of the <laughs> night and I was sleeping with earplugs and being the one be like, I was not the fun one sometimes feeling like I have an exam at eight o'clock in the morning. You know, it just, it but means you, you have to, choice. you have to prioritize things and, and it means that you have to limit how much Netflix you watch. Wow. Don't say that. Wow. Look, I am an addict, okay? I am equally as addicted. Do we need an ulcer call? Do we need a Netflix ulcer call? Is this happening? But really, unless you're managing to watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine and also sing arias at the same time, then not winning. And I also, during uni, was singing in a 21-piece big band that traveled around um, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York and played Lincoln Center in front of, you know, the the Metropolitan Opera and it took discipline because then that was before YouTube when you could Google or like Spotify when you could just listen to how Frank Sinatra sang it or just readily get the CD of how Etta James sang that song or Ella Fitzgerald sang it. I had to actually take complicated charts that were sometimes a hundred pages long that had every instrument on it and find my line and read it and play it and you think jazz is easy? <laughs> I would have. I liked my Tchaikovsky a lot better than some of those jazz charts, and it means you have to sit down and do it. So now that season has passed. I asked a similar question of Tab. I'm interested to hear from you on it because now you have different life. You've got husband, all these things. You can't put that much time into it. But how do you continue to improve now? What does that look like for you? You maximize your time. So driving in. To work, I'm doing my scales. I tell my students all the time when you're walking, be the idiot walking down the street singing your scales. Or if you're a guitarist, that you're mentally visualizing the frets and that you're, even if you're walking down and you're listening to a guitarist that you're trying to emulate, you're actually going, okay, that's what this finger position is. And that your visualization is actually a really amazing tool for creatives to create. Because even if you don't have your instrument in front of you, you don't have your computer in front of you, you don't have your boards in front of you, you've seen it before, right? You know what your instrument looks like, you know what the material is that you're, look, you're looking for. And it's actually a technique to visualize yourself doing it so that when you sit down to do it, you've already been there. Okay, so visualization as a form of practice. Let's come back to you, Strand, and then I've got something else coming your way, Mush. Um, for what you do as a visual creator, as a guy who's across a bunch of mediums, what does that look like for you when you aren't, I mean, you can practice like moving your right hand and moving the mouse as fast as you want. You can do warm-ups <laughs> on your way to church. Like those things don't help you, but your, your challenge is to stretch your imagination and your capacity to see what other people don't see yet. Um, how do you do that? I think oftentimes we're scared of, we want to be original. We don't want to copy anyone. But I think a key to being original is actually looking at the world around you and getting inspired and allowing yourself to be inspired. And not just when you find a good artist or find a good piece of you know, work or art, not copying that, 
but actually taking that on board and then looking at multiple things. So you always got to stay inspired and stay connected to um, things that look good, I guess, to you and what you want to achieve. I like that. Three things that are inspiring you right now? Uh, one of my friend's Instagrams yep. is just going off. Yeah. Um, it's mine. We, don't have, we, don't, we all know it. <laughs> Second thing? Nature. Be more specific. That doesn't count. Like the way the wind hits the trees and the clouds move in on a morning. It's beautiful. I like that. <laughs> Last thing. Um, movies. Netflix. <laughs> Netflix is practice. For me, it is. You're in the wrong game. Until it isn't. <laughs> um, by way of wrapping up, I'd love to hear from you guys about something that we've talked about here in the team a little bit and me and Mush have talked a little bit about it. Mm. Mush, talk to me about the temptation when you're, not even the temptation, but the inability to notice when you're coasting, when you're attached to an environment where there is momentum and whether you practice or not, people aren't going to notice. Talk to me about the danger of finding yourself in that spot where practice isn't as essential as it once was because look at this place. Oh, wow. I think the first, well, two things. First thing I think with like an environment like this that it is part of what makes us who we are is the fact that we are, are very encouraging and you look, you know, like, and we'll, I guess, applaud your effort and, you know, let you know that you did a good job or whatever the case may be. But if that is the measure of progress or measure of excellence, I feel like that is skewed and that is going to take, that's going to, that takes you sideways and takes you away from what you want to do. So going back to practice, if you, if a high five from your leader means that you're doing is your measure of progress, I feel like you're mistaken because I feel like the measure of progress should, be, should, be, should go against how many uncomfortable or how many enlarging environments do you find yourself? And is, that, is the count of those moments shrinking or growing? Are you constantly exposing yourself to situations that actually are challenging? If those situations have kind of died down and everything you get amongst is actually fairly achievable, then maybe it's worth questioning how much you actually are progressing. So not to diminish the encouragement or the applause, the applause, applause or the high five you may get from anyone. I'm just saying its place is not necessarily into, its place is not to be, I guess, your, your plumb line. The amount of stretch you feel within your craft is your plumb line. And the amount of environments you allow yourself to find yourself in is what determines whether or not you are or are not growing. No, I mean, I don't know if that's, that answers it, but that's yeah. more than answers yeah. it. That's cool. great. Thank you very much. Um, was that the first thing? Oh, sorry. Was the yeah, because yeah, you can keep going. This is really no, really good. No. I was going to say, I think as well, the the danger of coasting, or I think what, what progresses people, I feel like, is what happens in private. Like Sunday morning is not progressing you. It's great. It's revealing you, right? So. So if your idea of progress is I was able to play Sunday morning or whatever the case may be, or you were able to get a vision switch on Sunday morning, again, your measuring stick is off kilter. So what happens and if what's happening in private is diminishing, again, that's what you should be paying attention to and that's what you should be concerned with. And if that, like I said, I understand seasons and times and everything else, but again, I don't know how, I don't think you should be as quick to put things in the, it's the wrong season basket, because I think that can be an excuse as well. I think if you're passionate about your craft, make time for it. If you're passionate about what you want to do, if you do say, like, if you love what, if you love and you believe that this is where your gift is meant to be and contribute to, put time into it. 
Don't, don't allow yourself the easy excuses. And sometimes those are the excuses that we want to put wrap around some Christian language and give ourselves a validation that we don't necessarily need to practice. So, hey, this season doesn't really allow for that. Hey, I feel like maybe right now I just need to focus. Like, okay, maybe that's genuine, but I don't believe that, I don't believe that God gave you a gift to put on the shelf, for, to put on the shelf, especially in the practice part. I understand the expression of it, maybe put on the shelf for a while while God is honing you, but the actual effort you put into growing yourself should never go on the shelf. So. We're, um, we're finishing up. It's probably the last thing for you guys here is you talk about stewarding your gifts um, and not putting it on the shelf. Sure, the public expression and the, and the private devotion are two different things. Um, when it comes to that aspect, Chelsea, what would your encouragement be? from your perspective about what it takes to kind of steward the gift that God's given us? I think it goes along with the coasting thing too, because whenever I have been tempted to go there, God has revealed to me that I was making it about me. And when we're, when we're tempted to go there, and it's the, the balancing of that, that spiritual and practical, we owe him our absolute best. And if people can tour the world and say, we, I do it for the fans, great, love that. God still gave them that gift, but we, because we know this amazing creator who imagined the stars and then crafted it and then with the same breath said, sing, play, mix, create. How dare I coast? How, I can't afford to do that. How dare I make that about me? And that is where the balance of the spiritual and the practical comes in because I owe him the practical so that I can be faithful to the spiritual. Okay. Just going off the back of what Chelsea said, um, I think it's just remembering that we're doing this for people to see our gifts but then see God. Like that's the ultimate you know, when we, when we dance, when we sing, when we do whatever, it's all about pointing people to Jesus. And so the, the reason I want to get better at dancing is so that the dance is so clear to people. It's, it's not weird. It's not, oh, what's that? It's so clear that it opens up a door for them to start conversation, to, um, for me to then speak about God, all of that. And so remember that our gifting sometimes can be the door that brings people um, into the road of salvation. Yeah. Love this. Strandy? I think even if what we make doesn't explicitly say, you know, the gospel or whatever, we've got to be in the right place in our soul and in our personal lives so that whatever's outward comes from a place that we are aware of our position in Him, if that makes sense, and our, the calling on our lives. I love that. Um, one thing that I think shines through hearing these guys' stories that's really clear to me um, is that we hear stories about time spent practicing. We talk about Tab dancing 27 hours a day and sleeping for minus three hours or whatever else. Um, (laughs) But I've noticed that knowing each of these guys, that now it's not about how long you spend practicing, but what you spend practicing with the time that you do have. 10 minutes of perfect practice is better than three hours of wasted practice. It's something that every single one of us can develop and improve in. If you think you don't have enough time to practice, 
Come and talk to any of these four who live big lives, have big jobs, families, the whole deal, and you will find that, um, like Mush said, it's easy to make excuses, but when you actually look at what you've been entrusted with, um, with your own life, your own calling, with this church, this team, it's impossible to look those excuses in the eye and say they're valid. Um, you guys have challenged me tonight, so I'm very grateful for each of you. Thank you. Thank you for coming to lead us and inspire us and encourage us. Um, have you guys loved this? And can you please thank our panel, Mush, Chelsea, Tab, Strand. You guys are the best. Wow, practice, practice, practice. That's all you hear. I can remember as a kid, my mom and dad wanting me to practice the piano and I could never see the value in it. But now as an adult, I wished I had of. And so now as creatives, I think we should all take the challenge to get better by practicing and to really honour God by putting in the effort that it takes to be all we can be by practicing. What a challenge. Anyways, we're going to get straight into the creative compass right now with myself, Annie Garrett and Mashiri. So one of our core values, I guess, as a team would be to be teachable. So what does that look like? How do we do that? And and talk to me about that. <laughs> I think um, being open to letting people speak into your life about what's great and about what's not great. Yeah. Right. So I have actually even messaged Cass. I sat in a message at Sisterhood. They were talking about who are your people that, mm. you know, you can speak into your life. And I messaged her and I was like, hmm. I always want you to know that if you see something going on in me, like I want you to speak into that. So yeah. I think having an understanding that we all, of mm. course, we're not perfect people and we need to be growing in different areas. And so whether that's getting better at our job and what we do or if it's character stuff, just mm. having a, um, I've just stopped. <laughs> Sorry. But no, I think <laughs> you're right, Annie. No, I think you're right because like, I think at any point in time in your life, if there's nothing if there's nothing you can identify about yourself that needs mm. to get better, mm. then maybe you have stopped being teachable because I think you right. should always have those things that are sitting there going, I'm really aware that that needs progress in some yeah. shape, way or form. Yeah. The moment that's not clear is I think maybe the moment you've, been, you've begun stagnating yeah. and begun the teachability maybe isn't as present as it should be. Yeah, Because not not necessarily get down on ourselves, but just to be aware that this is what needs, like Annie's saying, mm. whether it's you knowing it or asking somebody else to speak into it, either yeah. way, mm. there should be an awareness of something that's maybe yeah. needs my effort, continued effort. I think grow. you're right. I think yeah. that it's so easy, particularly if you've been in church for a long time and been part for example, part of our team for a long time, it's so easy to get into the rhythm of being Christian, of loving God, but of, of even that sort of just being consistent. So so it's not that you're not going, in a sense, backwards, but you're not necessarily going forwards. And even just having an attitude of um, looking to grow and looking to learn, and that's a, that's a real thing, I think, and it's something we need to challenge ourselves on all the time. I remember just a little while back, Jad came to me, similar to what you were just saying, and he said to me, hey, if you ever see anything in the way I lead or in the way I, I live my life that isn't right or, or I could do better, tell me. And I was so challenged by that because I guess I see him as a peer and, and it made me think about the, who are the people that I would allow, who I, I'd actively go to and allow them to speak into my life on that level. Yeah, right. And I think it's, we, we won't move forward as a team if our, if our key leaders and aren't teachable and if we're yeah. not learning and growing forward, yeah. it's a big deal. I yeah, think, it is. It I think is. having the kind of the humility to have someone else speak into our lives mm-hmm. is, is important. Yeah. 
Absolutely. All right, so then great being leaders who are teachable, but what do you do with the person on the team who's perhaps not teachable? The question I ask is a bit sort of leading because I think that maybe as a leader, if you have someone on your team who's not um, teachable, sometimes that problem is not the person, <laughs> sometimes the problem is you or sometimes mm. it is them exactly or sometimes right. it's the culture of and the team. And that's kind of what saying, the environment. Like yeah. you've got to, before you address the individual, you've got to look at the environment. Have you created an environment that... That, uh, that I guess maybe people feel like they need to de- de- present a sense of I've got it mm. to be functional in this team? Right. Or is it an overwhelm- overwhelming culture that says, yes, Sunday was good and yes, was it, but we're getting better. Mm. And we all identify, we walk away with with things we did well and things we didn't. We need to improve on. Is, it, is that the overwhelming culture before you address somebody's individual, hey, let's, let's talk about what maybe you need to do. I right. don't know. Maybe that's... So, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask then, Annie, if you, how would you approach that? Like if there's someone in the team who obviously has an area of growth that's needed, um, but they maybe can't see it, they, they're presenting like they've got it all together, mm-hmm. how would you approach it? What do you do? Well, I think either way it's going to be a hard conversation. If I don't have a lot of relationship with them, it's going to be extra hard. If mm. that, like what we kind of talked about before, if that is my only, if there's no investment and it's just, but still, sometimes you just have to have those conversations. Mm. I think you have to determine, there's always a million things going on in people's lives. Right. And so often it appears that like this person is just like stuck or has attitude, but like you sit down and have a conversation that doesn't start with the problem, but starts with how are you going? What's happening in your life? What's, how you, I always ask people like, how are you finding it on the team? Mm-hmm. And then often outcomes, what's the frustration or maybe it's, I don't know where I fit or and I think sometimes you have to get to the bottom of what's really going on. And if it is a case of someone is just decided they know best and they're unteachable, well, you can only take someone mm. that you can't take anyone further. Yeah, but often I, I feel like giving a little bit of yourself and having a conversation, you can, you can work out that the problem isn't exactly what it appears to be. Again, as well, like you've also got to ask for that individual, how clear as a leader, because I think at this point in time, we can point towards the person, but because we're talking about us as leaders and what we do in the team, you've got to ask yourself, how clear have you made the um, values and the standards on your team? What are the expectations? If someone doesn't know the expectations, expectations, they can't bring their best. Like how clear are they? Because you can't hold them accountable for something they don't know. Mm. So before, yes, there may be a a need to address the person's, you know, character and everything else and all that. But I'd say before you do that, you've really got to be clear and know that you've actually established clear expectations. Mm. And if there's still a mismatch from those, then have the conversation that's difficult. Right. You know? Yeah. And here's what I've noticed. What do you think of that? Mm. Here's what I'd love to see. How do you think we can get there? Yeah. All right. Real practically though, but what, what's an example of when that might play out? Because I guess it's easy to talk abstract. Right. Yeah. Realistically, on a, on a Sunday, when yeah. do you see that in the team? I think, okay, so practically speaking from like, uh, you know, I'm part of our creative tech slash production department. So if I take something, something like a lighting operator, in other words, who maybe we're talking about the skill and what somehow something went on Sunday morning, I would address that based on the expectations we have put that. So if I need to address something that didn't go well Sunday morning, practically like mm-hmm. they missed a moment or a transition didn't happen well, I've got to do that in light of predetermined expectations and predefined right. expectations. So I would have that conversation and say, hey, let's look at this here. What happened here? Mm. Right. Here's what's meant to happen. Here's what happened. Do you see it? Mm. And let's talk about you not seeing it. Or if you do see it, then what are we doing to fix it? 
Right. And it, I guess the teachability factor would come out in the conversation, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because that's where you it's highlighted. Exactly. <laughs> see someone's making a mistake and decide that's because they're unteachable. That's why, I mean, sometimes you've got to get to the bottom. Like, right. what is the problem that they're actually unteachable? Right. Well, then you, you're not going to be able to do a lot with that if mm. they've decided they're not. Yeah. But And it's in, it's in the response that you see the teachability or not. Yeah. And, and the same with ourselves. So if, if our oversight is coming to us with something, you know right. in your own spirit the way you respond to that right. that correction or that conversation, you know, well, you should be able to know if you're being teachable or or not. And I guess that yeah. the humility with which you receive that, because in that, like in that practical example I gave, the answer you could get one maybe of maybe one of two answers. For example, you could get an, an answer that says, "Oh, I didn't know that's what I was supposed to do." Right. And then that's a very you actually want that answer because mm. then it's a very easy. Well, here it is. Let's clarify it and let's get you to work towards that. Or it's like, oh, I know that, but I thought it was better to do it this way. <laughs> right. And then you, it, you, know, so, you know, I mean, two different responses, but they're both very informative and they mm. both lead the next conversation or where the conversation goes from that point. Yes. So I think you're right. I think you definitely you kind of, you at least gauge by the response mm. you get when you ask the question. Mm. And I guess we should be self-assessing as well in that because those sorts of conversations when I've had to have them, I guess I've tried to approach them humbly as well because although yeah, we have standards right. and that's we have right. ways and that's all of that, you don't want to pre- or sort of presume that that your way is the best way or the only way because with the exactly lighting right. example, maybe they've got something else to contribute yeah. and we're doing this together as a team, yeah. not just as a dictatorship or no, something like absolutely. that. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's it for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that on iTunes, YouTube, or SoundCloud. And I'd encourage you to do that so you can be a part of the journey with us. We'd love to hear from you too. So if you want to give us your comments, do that on our Instagram. It's at HillsongWCC. And we'll see you next time.